0: Our topic for this morning, the full gospel from John chapter 3 verses 16 to 21. So as we continue our series in the gospel of John, last week, if you recall, we looked at the story of Nicodemus, a teacher, part of the Sanhedrin, a very religious man, and his encounter with Jesus. A religious man who nevertheless needed to be born again. So this morning we look at perhaps the most, like I said, most well-known verse in the Bible. But it is important that we look at it in its context. So even when, even when we are quoting it ourselves, that we know what it is about and understand the full implication of what the good news of the gospel is about. Just by way of introduction, scholars are not in full agreement on whether these verses from verse 16 onwards are a continuation of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus or whether this is John's Commentary on that encounter on the first 15 verses. Now, we will not get into that debate of whether it's one way or the other, whether these are the words of Jesus spoken to Nicodemus or this is John's commentary. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter because they are still under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is still God's word, whether it's a red letter or a black letter, it doesn't matter. It is still God's Word. So the passage before us starts with overwhelmingly good news because that's exactly what the Gospel is. But the Gospel is also sobering in its presentation. It's a bit like coming to someone and saying, By the way, I have good news and I have bad news. And I have to tell you both. So which one do you want to hear first? So the passage this morning, I thought about twisting it around a bit, but we're going to start with the good news. This is the good news that you're going to get first. So we start with verse 16, the love of the Father. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or, as the New English translation has it, for this is the way God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, that everyone who believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. This verse is often referred to as the miniature Bible, God's miniature Bible. It is the Gospel. It is the good news in summary. Here, the heart of God is revealed. It is not the love of the Son which is emphasised, but rather the love of the Father who sent the Son, who gave the Son. From His throne above all the way down to be born in a manger in Bethlehem and all the way to the cross in Calvary. The perfect son, the perfect life given for you and for me to the glory of the Father. It is the ultimate measure of God's love for mankind. The ultimate now, here's a good outline of John 3.16. It's a good outline that I wanted to share with you. i got this from Our Daily Bread. And it goes like this. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world the greatest company, that He gave the greatest act, His one and only son, the greatest gift. That whoever believes, the greatest simplicity. In him, the greatest person should not perish, the greatest promise, but the greatest difference. Have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. I thought that was very good. God the greatest. In every measure, in every respect, undoubtedly. It doesn't get better than that. Whatever it is that you experience in life, it doesn't get better than that. And even as we watch the World Cup and say, What a that is the greatest goal ever, and says, Yeah. I've seen better. It doesn't get better than this because God is the greatest. And God's gift is eternal life in heaven through the Son. The matter should be simple, easy, it should be settled and everyone should be able to accept this as the truth. You would think so, right? Right? A nice quote that I want to share with you. A man's life is made up of 20 years of his mother asking him where he is going, 40 years of his wife asking him where he has been and one hour at his funeral when everyone wonders where he's ended up. And atheists, of course, accuse us that we have somehow created this idea of heaven because we simply cannot handle reality. But you see, it's not a human invention in order to deal with grief. Do you know that they have yet to find a native tribe anywhere that doesn't believe in the supernatural in the afterlife? This is because it was God It was God himself who created us in his image. He put, to use computer language, he put a chip in there called, he put eternity in the hearts of men. That's what Ecclesiastes tells us. Ecclesiastes 3.11. That is why there's always this thought about the afterlife, about eternity. Now let's go back to our passage and assume that Jesus is still talking to Nicodemus. Any Pharisee would agree with this declaration of the love of the Father for his people. The bitter pill for them to swallow was the revelation that God's gift of eternal life was through the death of his Son and that this sacrifice was for the world. This is the love that breaks down all barriers. Because somehow they were in this thought that God just loves his own people, his chosen people, because they are good people, apparently. But here, this is the inclusiveness of the gospel, that it is for the world, irrespective of race, irrespective of status in life, irrespective of nationalities, it is for the world that is the inclusiveness of the gospel. The exclusiveness of the gospel is in the fact that it requires what it requires—belief, requires belief, faith. Belief consists of accepting something, not. Doing something which is what religion is all about. The result of belief is that one receives eternal life in and through him and once he does that he is freed from condemnation and lives in a relationship of total honesty before God. The essential evidence that I have received that birth that comes down from heaven is that I am trusting the Saviour Jesus Christ who came down from heaven to die for my sins and to entrust myself to Him as my Lord and my Master. That is the Gospel. Martin Luther said that the Christian life or that Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a saviour. It is quite another to say he is my saviour and my Lord. And he went on, he said, The devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. I hope and I pray that all of us here are able to say Christ is my Saviour and He is my Lord. Because most people out there do not, they cannot. They cannot say it. Verses 17 to 18. We move from the love of the Father to the choice. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And Some will say, and I've heard it quoted quite a few times, see, the Bible says that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. So why are you condemning me for my lifestyle choices if not even God is condemning me? And there are a few different colours. You can't judge me, only God can judge me. That type of stuff. So what is the answer when they say things like that to us? Short answer is that God did not send the son to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. This is why it says here, whoever does not believe stands condemned already. It can't be simpler than that. It's right there. That is the present standing of all humanity without Christ it is quite sobering this is the sobering side of John 3:16 and when we quote John 3:16 we need to move on and also tell them this because this is the other side of John 3:16 That is the short answer. Now we'll proceed with a longer explanation and answer because we need to truly understand this fundamental issue. It's important for us. This is Christianity 101. If you don't get this, you won't get anything. Salvation, not damnation, was the purpose of God's love for mankind condemnation was incidental but not primary in God's gift of his son at Calvary. Because later in John, we read, in John chapter 9 verse 39, we read, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. That is there. That is in John's Gospel. So we have to put those things together. Strictly speaking, the coming of Christ to the world and His death on the cross did not condemn men to eternal damnation because men were already condemned. The Son came to accomplish salvation for condemned men. He came into a world of sinners who were under the sentence of death. Like The brass serpent that we spoke about last week that was lifted up in the desert. It is only those who look to him for salvation who are delivered from condemnation. And that takes faith. And the presentation of the good news of God's love offers two options. And only two options, to believe or to perish. God has made provision through the Son, but if you don't believe, you will perish. You will go to hell. This is not about the cessation of life. It is also eternal life, but not eternal life in heaven. This is eternal life in hell. It means to experience utter failure, futility, total loss, eternal suffering. If you don't trust in the living Saviour, the eternal Son of God, there is only one other option, eternal perdition. I have few colleagues and there are people out there of some standing who really, really struggle with this picture of hell that I've just described to you. Because so they try, how can a loving God do? And so it goes. So you try and soften up the picture of hell to make it more palatable to modern tastes and sensitivities but you know this is this is why Jesus today remains a dividing figure because when he spoke He spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, actually. He took it seriously. He never joked about it when he spoke about hell. He spoke about it because it is something real. It is something so horrible, terrifying. And Every time we talk about it, we have to think about the consequences because we have members of our own family who are going there. And that has to break your heart. Not to even start talking about your neighbours and relatives and, and people in the world who are openly rejecting God. Oh, Paul, come on! You've got to get with modern times, mate. We've got a new definition of hell. You just cease to exist, okay? Come on, I'm, you, 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 you're preaching. You know, it's just just too strong, mate. No, no, I can't go there again. I can't listen to this stuff. Well, I'm sorry. It's, it's what the Bible's saying. Unless we start taking little bits and pieces of the Bible and chop and change, and we end up with a with the Bible that is simply going to be little bits and pieces that you like and you're not going to talk about the pieces you don't like. A bit like the, the Jefferson Bible. This, this Jesus coming into the world divided humanity. He is the one and only Son the only way of salvation, the only way, the one and only way of salvation. There is no other way. As Isaiah said it this way, he says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. And what? There is no other. There is no other. So how much simpler could God have made it? He has already done all the work. He has paid the price. He has torn down the barriers. All he asks the sinner to do is to come to him and to believe in him. That is not complicated. It is simple. Even a child can understand this stuff. However, Maybe you've maybe you've heard the story of a man named Jack. It is a fictional story, but nevertheless, it illustrates the point. A man named Jack was walking along a steep cliff one day when he accidentally got too close to the edge of, and fell. On the way down, he grabbed a branch, which temporarily stopped his fall. He looked down, and to his horror, he saw that the canyon fell down for another thousand feet. He couldn't hang on to the branch forever and there was no way for him to climb back up this steep wall of a cliff. So Jack began yelling for help, hoping that somebody passing by would hear him and lower the rope or something. Help! Help! Is anyone up there? Help! He yelled, screamed for hours. But no one heard him. He was about to give up, and he heard a voice. Jack, Jack, can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear you. I'm down here. I can see you, Jack. Are you all right? Yes, but who are you, and and where are you? I am the Lord, Jack. I'm everywhere. The Lord? You mean God? Yes, that's me. God, please help me. I promise if you'll get me down from here, I'll stop sinning. I'll, I'll be a really good person. I'll save you for, for the rest of my life. Easy on the promises, Jack. Let's just get you down from here and then we can talk. Now, here's what I want you to do. Listen carefully. I'll do anything, Lord. Just tell me what, I, what, what to do. Okay? Let go of the branch. What? What? I said, let go of the branch. Just trust me, let go. There was a long silence. And finally, Jack yelled out, Help, help! Is anyone else up there? <laughs> Have you ever felt like Jack? sounds scary, sounds difficult we decide to look elsewhere and see if there's another option when he says let go of the things that stand between you and me and trust me with your life it's pretty pretty scary but when we let go We find freedom, safety, assurance, relief in his hands. That is what we find. So, what is the verdict then? Verses 19 to 21, we look at the verdict. And this is the verdict. That what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, if you follow the different images that John, the Gospel writer, uses us in chapter, in chapter 3, this is the fourth image that he uses. The first one was, well, new birth, then we got wind, the serpent, and now we have light and darkness. Light and darkness is going to appear later on in the Gospel of John again. But here, verses 16 to 17 reveal the motive of God, God's love in in, in sending the Son. Verses 16 to 17. And then verses 19 to 21 expose the wickedness of the hearts of those who reject him, who reject the son. The difference you see between a believer and an unbeliever is not in the the guilt or innocence of either of them. That's not the difference. They're both guilty. It lies in the different attitudes they have towards the light. As a sinner, man does not sin accidentally or reluctantly. But he sins with pleasure. He delights in it. He enjoys it. That is why he does it. Maybe you can picture the scene at night when you walk into the kitchen and you turn on the light, the kitchen is infested with cockroaches crawling everywhere you've had you've been there, right? And the moment you turn on the light, what happens? All these cockroaches just scatter everywhere, everywhere, and out comes the spray and all of that. They run everywhere and they hide everywhere. You see, when man's wickedness is exposed, he has no intention of forsaking sin. So he tries to hide from the light which exposes the sin. Sin invariably, invariably leads the sinner to hide himself or herself from God just like adam and eve tried to hide from god but but he goes he goes further than that because at the same time we're not just talking cockroaches here but the cockroaches has banded together and have done something to the wiring or even have, you know, unscrewed the globe so that the light doesn't come on. That's called suppressing the light. Extinguishing the light. This is happening right now. It has happened throughout history in the various forms of persecution the process of extinguishing the light. There is both heavy persecution and light persecution. Whatever it is we're going through Australia at the moment is light, light, very light, light, light light persecution. I'm not saying, and it's very likely that worse is down the road, but this is nothing compared to what some of our brothers and sisters are having to experience around the world right at this very moment. Man in both deed and motive is a sinner. It is for this reason that he is worthy of condemnation and it is for this reason that God sent his son to save us. For this reason. Now, Lord Kenneth Clark, I don't know if many of you remember him. Some of you, uh, from the 60s, he was a British historian who presented his television series called Civilization. No? Doesn't, it's probably black and white. Yeah? Okay, I have a nod. Very clever man, uh, well-known in his day. Kenneth Clark, he lived and died as an unbeliever. In his uh, autobiography, he admitted that while visiting a beautiful church one day, he had what he believed to be an overwhelmingly beautiful religious experience. And this is what he said. He said, My whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I had known before. But the gloom, listen to this, the gloom of grace, as he described it, created a problem. If he allowed himself to be influenced by it, he knew that he would have to change. His family might think that he had lost his mind. And maybe that intense joy would prove to simply be an illusion. So he concluded... And this, I quote, he said, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. Isn't that the story of many? sad story, isn't it? They can see the light. They know where the light is. But too deeply embedded to change course. And you see, intellectual problems are only part of the reason why people don't trust in Jesus Christ. There comes a point when it's not just an intellectual barrier, it is a moral, it is a spiritual barrier. As I've told you, I've had discussions with people trying to share the gospel with them, and they throw up one smoke screen after another, one excuse after another, you know, like we've, we saw in the video last Sunday night, you know, like, did did Adam have a belly button? That type of question, you know? Really important stuff. So the, the, the problem is, is, ultimately, it's no longer... Intellectually, it it is a spiritual problem, isn't it? So what excuse have you encountered? Or maybe what excuse have you used when confronted with the light? Eventually, you know, like the Apostle Paul, you will find yourself blinded by the light. It is glaring, it is blinding. And people loving darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil is the normal state of affairs. And and again, you're probably saying, Paul, you're just too pessimistic, mate. Come on, get with the program. There is no wild optimism here. Sorry. It, It rings true to the state of where the world is. This is the normal state of affairs. I see women, I saw women this past week celebrating the legalisation of infanticide, which we call abortion, in, in Argentina. And previous to that we saw the images in Ireland celebrating joyfully. Even coming up to those who were holding a prayer vigil in front of the, those people who were rejoicing, and they were still praying and holding a vigil, and these people coming and spitting on their face, and these people, these Christians, not responding, just singing and praying. That's normal, guys. That's normal. This is what this world looks like. I'm not making this stuff up. You know it rings true. Yet to this world to this darkness we are called to proclaim the good news. And sometimes it feels like just recently ambulance workers Uh, ambulance workers in Melbourne going about paramedics, going about their duty. They get a call, they go out and the very people they're trying to save turn around and attack them. You've seen the news. Then these girls go to court and they get less than a slap on the wrist and they come out of court just giggling and laughing like it's nothing. It feels like that. And, 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 and the, the task of the Christian as he shares the good news is, is more than just a paramedic because only if, if you save somebody's life is only for this life. We are talking about eternity. Therefore the issue is much more serious because eternity is involved here. yet we have the, the duty to share the good news. The response, whatever the response will be as we share the good news, as we shine the light, is out of our hands. Some will believe, most won't. I'm just laying it out there. But some will. That is the nature of the sower. Who sows the seed. Now I need to make a comment here that might prove a little bit controversial to some of you, if, if nothing what I've said has been controversial already. But when we share the gospel, you shouldn't always force the point to lead them to make a decision for Christ right there and then, at that moment. Perhaps in the context of this passage, perhaps some of you might even be a little troubled at the fact that Jesus did not press Nicodemus for a decision here. It's, it's just sort of Nicodemus fades away from the story, but I do not personally feel that Nicodemus left, Nicodemus left this interview as a believer, as a newborn Christian after this first meeting with Jesus. I think he left greatly troubled because Jesus just put his finger where it hurt. As somebody else described that, he left a stone in his shoe. <coughs> Forever got him thinking and wondering. And we know that in, in, the, in the rest of the Gospel of John that later on, There is enough evidence to indicate that indeed he did come to faith later on and praise God for that. We share the news, we share the good news and the not so good news. We have to share the gospel. We leave the results to God. And presenting the gospel is far different thing than selling insurance, maybe even selling life insurance. Our job is not to get men's signatures but to confront them with the truth of the gospel. And after 2,000 years, nothing has changed, has it? Sinners are still saved by believing and trusting in Jesus and coming to faith in him and him alone, for there is no other way. But thanks be to God that at least there is one way. Because if God didn't care, if God didn't love us, there would be no way at all. Praise be to God. Amen.